God, I thank you so much for this time where we can just come together and worship you and for the teaching that we're about to have. I thank you so much for having your spirit just filling this place, and I pray that it'll continue as we go on through this study. And I just thank you so much for your tabernacle and for this women's ministry that we have at St. James Church. In your name, amen. Good evening. I'm so glad to see all of you. I thank you for coming. I'm sure for a lot of you this has been a a long day. But I just pray that, that the Lord will refresh you and give you the energy and the stamina to stay awake. <laughs> uh, I want to start by just kind of recapping a little bit of what Lana shared with us last week and explaining to us about the East Gate, which is what you entered into when you came into this place. I want to remind you that she said There is only one way to enter into the courtyard, the holy place here. There's only one way in and there's only one way out. And that reminds us, there's one way in, only through my Father, remember? We also learn the significance of the colors in the gate, the colors, the door of the east gate, what they stood for. And she also explained to us about the tabernacle, how it was a portable temple, how as the Israelites were traveling, that the Lord said to them in Exodus, I think it's 25, 8, she said, make for me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among you. The Lord had a, had a longing to be in our presence and to be with us. So the tabernacle was built. And he had very specific instructions as to how he wanted everything done. And he had a reason. And I hope tonight and the rest of this session that we'll be able to reveal to you what the Lord's word meant and what the purpose was for each one of those little details. I hope that you all got your handouts before you came in. I want you to look at this sheet right here. I'm a visual person. And I love this picture. As you see, the tabernacle camped in the middle of all these other tents. This is the way they lived. Now, I want you to notice, too, that the fire that you see coming down from heaven, and I want you to notice the fire in this piece of furniture, like the one that you see here. I hope, too, that whenever we get through with this session, that you'll have an appreciation for furniture like you've never had before. You know, we as ladies, we like to furnish our homes, and we're funny about, you know, the things that we like, and we all have probably different taste. But I do hope that the furniture of the tabernacle will come alive to you and will mean more to you than you ever imagined. Now, I want to give you a little information about the people, all these people that came out of Egypt with Moses. In my reading, I found that there were over 600,000 families represented in this journey. Now, some of the uh, readings will tell you that this amounted to numbers as much as 2 or 3 million people. That's a lot of people. But it was very organized how these people camped around this tabernacle. They were in sections. On one side, you would have had three tribes. To the rear, you would have had three tribes. 
To the east or to the west, you to south, you'd have had three tribes, and to the east, you'd have three tribes. So all the twelve tribes were represented, and they were here. And another thing that I found interesting, and some of you may have known this, forty years they traveled, but they were held captive, and they were slaves in Egypt for four hundred years. That's a long time. And I was reading, I thought, hmm. They were in Egypt for 400 years, and they traveled the desert for 40 years. I'm not a math person, but I knew that that was 10%. And so immediately I'm thinking, hmm, that's our tithe. There are little hidden messages all through the Word. And when you dig, or when you read, and when you look up and you find things, it's amazing the details that the Lord put into His Word. But let me tell you about these uh, 400 years while the Israelites were in Egypt. They learned a lot of things that were not of their ways. They learned the ways of their culture. They learned the ways of their gods, their habits. They were all about the Egyptian way of life. Well, when the Lord freed them out of Egypt and he carried them to the desert, his intent was to get all of that out of them, to let them recommit to their ways to their God, to their laws, to their language. And then I got to thinking, well, my gosh, how far do you go for 40 years? And so, excuse me, I got my husband and my son, Henry, and I said, y'all Google that and find that out for me. Y'all, it's only 220 miles. I mean, that's like going to Jasper, Alabama. It took them 40 years to go 200 miles? I'm thinking, what, what was with that? And then it dawned on me. They were heathens. They had a lot of heathenism in them. And they were a stubborn people. And it took that long. Were they slow? Or what? <laughs> Living in those conditions? And can you imagine... They all brought their, their livestock with them. They brought their sheep and their goats. They brought their bulls. They brought it all, the doves, the pigeons, the lambs. They brought it with them. Now, can you imagine two to three million people with all these animals encamped here? Can you imagine what the smell would have been like? At my house, we have dogs. We have a lot of dogs, and they come in the house. And I know what my house smells like sometimes, especially when they've been wet and they come in. It's awful. But can you imagine being in camp with two to three million people and all those? No wonder they moved. <laughs> you know? You had to get away from that. It would definitely be a deterrent. But so these roughneck people that were slow to learn took 40 years for the Lord to to do the work in them that needed to be done so that they could truly be his chosen people, so they could be what their heritage mandated that they be. Um, one of the things I want to share with you too, because I want you to know that the things that I know and the things that I say are not my words. I want that to be very clear. I don't want to get in trouble with the Lord for trying to take credit for something that is not capable to come from my brain. But look in the book of Leviticus, the ninth chapter. (coughs) 
just to show you. The 23rd verse. Keep in mind this picture as I read to you. Coming out of Leviticus, the ninth chapter, the 23rd verse. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Now, this was the first, you know, the first really powerful sign that these people had that that the Lord was with them. And I can imagine, had I been there that day and I saw fire come from heaven and I saw fire ignite under the brazen altar, I would have fallen face down too, I'm sure. So on your handout, you can see... The question I have here is, what is the brazen altar? You see what it looks like and what it looked like in that day. But what was the purpose of the brazen altar? The brazen altar was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of slaughter. Y'all see? This was the place where natural, earthly Things that hinder your walk with God are forgiven. This is where those things that hinder your walk with God are consumed by the fire of God. And let me tell you this too. This fire that the Lord lit, it never went out 24-7. There was somebody always there, assigned, throw more wood on the fire, throw more wood on the fire. To keep the fire of the Lord lit at all times. So what was the purpose of the brazen altar? The purpose of this altar was to receive the offerings, the sacrifices that were made in order to have their sins forgiven and to restore their fellowship with God. Now, we know that the Lord had given specific instructions so that you will know, so you don't have to take my word. I want you to go to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus in the 27th chapter. And the word says, build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks and fire pans. Make a grafting for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings so they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made 
just as you were shown on the mountain. Now I want you to turn to Exodus 38. You will find in the Word that the Lord repeats things time and time again. Here it says basically the same thing, that they built the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, three cubits high. It was five square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. They made a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar were of one piece, and they overlaid the altar with bronze. They made all the utensils. They made a grafting for the altar. They cast bronze rings. They made the poles of acacia wood. They inserted the poles into the rings. They made it hollow. They did it just as the Lord had instructed them to. And one thing I think that maybe you'll remember from last week, Lana talked about numbers in the Bible and the, uh, the meaning of some of these numbers. So I'm going to go back uh, in Exodus on that, where was it, the 27th chapter, and we're going to talk just a second about these. When he said, build the altar of acacia wood, here we are reminded what Lana had said about acacia wood. Acacia wood is a very strong wood. It's what they call an incorruptible wood. It would have no disease and no insects. Also, the three cubits in the measurements, the three cubits high. The number three represents the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we move on down and we talk about the bronze, how it was uh, overlaid or made with, with bronze. Some of the articles are made of bronze. Bronze coming from copper is a sign of that represents judgment. Now, some of the times you will hear, oh, they used brass for this and brass. Not in this day. Brass was not uh, a material of that day. Brass came much later on. So we're looking at bronze. Oftentimes you'll hear it called brazen. But that's what the altar was made of. Uh, and we go on down and talks about the wood. And remember, too, Lana talked about the wood, this being made of wood. What is wood a representative of? Humanity. You'll learn more about the wood, and you'll learn more about humanity as we go on in this study. So now that you hear what the Word says and what the instructions were, let me tell you a little bit about this altar, this brazen altar. It does have the four corners, just as the word says. And some of the teachings will say that these four corners, these horns that go in all four directions of the world, say, some will say that this is because God wanted the gospel to reach the four corners of the world. And these horns also represented power and strength and might. A more practical use of these horns, though, would be where when people would bring their sacrifices, they would time to the altar so they wouldn't get away. And when I think about an animal being brought to the altar to be sacrificed, I think about that representation of power and might and strength. And don't you know, when that animal was tied to this altar, he used every bit of power and might and strength he had to get free. To get free. Power, might, and strength to get free. And you know, I think sometimes we'll, we'll have a, something in our senses. We'll enter into a place or we'll, we'll be outside in the parking lot and we'll get that little sense of fear. You women get that sometimes? 
Get that fear? I imagine that's the same feeling that those animals had. They instinctively knew when they came and they were being tied up, something was about to happen. But that was the purpose of the horns. This is where you came to bring your sacrifice. This is where you came to bring your sins to be forgiven. This is where you came, where you laid everything you had that was not of the Lord, that was hindering your walk. This is where you laid it. And the fire from heaven would burn that up. You would be forgiven. You get to start clean. And you know, we also learned in the New Testament too, when you sin and you go before the Lord and you ask for forgiveness for that sin, so many times we don't really give it. So many times we take that sin back and we beat ourselves up for it. But you know what? The Lord forgets. You confess, you are forgiven, and He forgets. I want you to think about that the next time you're beating yourself up about something for the 10th time. You just remember. You remember, but he doesn't. He forgets. That is a huge comfort to me to know that I can screw up and he can forget about it. I don't know about you, but if I had to stack my sins, big. But man... They're gone, and they're forgiven. Uh, Another thing that I want to tell you, too, is that whenever you came through that east gate and you were at this altar or anywhere within the courtyard, that was considered holy ground. And so people would leave their shoes at the gate. Sometimes those of you who like to go to the beach, you know, sometimes you'll walk to the boardwalk You've got your little flip-flops on or your little cute little water shoes or whatever. And you get to the end of that boardwalk and you kick those shoes off because you don't want sand in your shoes. That's what they did. Because you see the dirt and the filth and the commonness from outside. It stayed outside because this was holy ground. Um, one of the things that I want to share with you tonight this this really important are the five Levitical offerings, the sacrifices that people would read, that they would bring to the altar. And I want to tell you, this is good reading. Sometime when you have, when you have time in your quiet time or your study time or whatever, I want you to read those. It's great information. It's more detailed than you can imagine. But tonight I'm just going to hit the high points. In your handouts, you receive a sheet that has all the Levitical offerings of sacrifices on it. If you would get that out, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. If you want to make some notes on your paper, you can do that too. Now, we might be tempted to omit the details of the sacrifice. But in doing so, we would overlook the perfect picture of our precious Lamb of God. You see, this tabernacle, it's a foreshadowing of Christ to come. Every piece of this tabernacle is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. You came through the east gate. It faces the east. What does the word tell us about the east when the Lord comes again? He will come from the east. Only one way in. The only way to the Father is through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
The only way to be forgiven is to bring your sins to the brazen altar and lay them at the foot of Christ. Lay them at the altar to be burned and forgiven and forgotten. So the first offering that we're going to talk about is the burnt offering. Now this offering, this was a voluntary act of worship. This was uh, for the atonement, for the unintentional sin that you uh, may have committed. And this was just an unintentional sin, just in general, nothing specific. You knew that you had done something wrong, weren't quite sure, maybe, but you knew you had. I mean, who lives a perfect, sinless life? Who talks nice about everybody all the time? Who speaks nicely to their husband all the time? No one. So the burnt offering was brought, and this was an outward way of saying that this was a consecration. This was surrendering yourself to God. Now, the word burnt, they meant burnt. I don't know about you ladies that cook. I burn the bread. I burn the rolls every single time to a crisp. What was put on this altar, this burnt offering, it was burnt to a crisp. There was nothing to save. It was gone. It was burnt. Now, let me tell you, some of the animals that would be brought to the sacrifice here for the burnt offering, it could be a ram. It could be a bull. It could be a male bird. You see, the sacrifice that you brought told a lot about what your sin was. It could also tell you a lot about the station of the person bringing the sacrifice. For instance, if a high priest were making a sacrifice, he would bring a bull. If somebody that was the leader of a congregation or the sage wise one of their tribe or whatever, he would bring a male goat. But that would be brought, it would be burnt. And what you're saying when you leave all this at the cross, at the brazen altar, what, the, what it really says is, all I am is God's. This is not about me. This is about him. And all I am is his. Have your way with me, Lord, is what you're saying. The next one that we want to look at is the grain offering. Now, this offering here did not require any bloodshed at all. What you would bring to this would be some fine flour. I think the word describes it. It tells you that they would bring a tenth of an ephah. Well, I had to look that up. That's just a handful. You know, that's just some grain. But you would bring that. And that grain may be, uh, that flour may be mixed with um, some oil or some incense. But it would have no honey, no leveling, none of the good stuff. But that was what they would bring. And a lot about this offering is uh, that it shows God's goodness and his faithfulness and for the provisions that he has made in your life. And so you're bringing back some of what he has given to you. You're bringing it back to him to show your gratitude. And all things, too, this also symbolizes that all I have belongs to God. I am not who I am. I have not what I have because of me. All I have comes from God. Uh, <clears throat> also, uh, let's look down to the fellowship offering too. 
Now, this was also called a peace offering. And this was a covenant that you were making with the Lord, saying, I am reconciled with God. You and I are together, Lord. I am with you. I am your follower. I follow your commandments. My heart be your heart. This was a reconciliation. This was a teamwork. Also, this offering, this fellowship offering, or this peace offering, this was when you would bring something to sacrifice, and the priest and those that would be attending the sacrifice would cut a piece of the meat, and they would give it back to you. And you would go home to your family, and you would have a celebration. It would be a meal of celebration, a meal of like thanksgiving for what the Lord had done. Now, you see, the next offering is the sin offering. We're going to skip that one a little bit. That's a bad one right there. That makes us all have to look a little inward. So let's jump on down to the guilt offering. Now, this guilt offering, it too was a mandatory offering. Your guilt offering and your sin offerings, those are mandatory. No one lives without sin or guilt. So those were mandatory. This was a mandatory atonement. This was an intentional sin against your brother or against your neighbor. And someone may have been injured. You may have caused uh, your neighbor, if you uh, mistakenly, you know, got one of their offerings and, and not meaning to steal, but you just, it kind of got in your flock or something. Well, when you realize that, it was unintentional because you didn't steal it. It just kind of came your way. What you would do is you would ask for forgiveness for that, intentional sin, but you would ask for forgiveness. And then you would go compensate the person that you had wronged. That's what you do with a guilt offering. Also with the guilt offering, it's very important that you um, have regret and remorse. But let me tell you about regret and remorse. Regret, you regret you got caught. When your children were little and they would do things wrong, oftentimes you could tell they would have regret mainly because they got caught. That was the way it was with Henry. He couldn't stand to do something wrong and not some point tell you about it. You know, he just had to get it off. He just felt so guilty. He just had to get it off, even if he was going to get in trouble. And after he did, man, he felt better. But he had remorse. He had sorrow. And that's what God wants from us. He wants our hearts to be affected. He wants us to feel remorseful because with remorsefulness comes repentance and restitution and forgiveness and all the good things. But regret, you can regret it all you want. But until you have remorse for that, it's no good. Now let me talk to you a little bit about the sin offering. This is a big one. The sin offering was mandatory, and it was for specific things that you had done. It also involved a sin against God. You broke one of the commandments. You did something really bad. This sin also required confession, forgiveness, cleansing from defilement. You needed the atonement to bring about reconciliation with God. Now let me tell you about some of these Offerings, like I said a while ago, 
If you were a priest, you brought a bull. If you were the leader of your family or the leader of your congregation, you brought a male goat. If you were a common person, you would bring a female goat or a lamb. If you were a poor person, you would bring a pigeon or a dove. If you were really destitute, you would bring a small portion of your flour, your fine flour that you have. But here again, you could have oil and you could have incense, but you couldn't have the honey, you couldn't have the leveling, you couldn't have any of that. So what you brought pretty much said what your station in life was and what your sin was. But now for the common person, I'm going to talk to you a little deeper about that because that's you and me. That's us. The common person would come with his sacrifice and he would bring a lamb and he would stop at the east gate before he entered into it. And there would be a priest standing out there, probably just in all white, not the high priest garbs and all the decorations. And he would be met. The person would be met by that priest and he would take the offering and he would look at it. And he would search the offering to make sure that it had no uh, blemishes, no defects. So he would look at this lamb, and he would check it out, and he would say to you, what family do you represent? The Pierce family. The Pierce family. And this is your lamb? Yes, it is. Okay. What is this lamb for? It's for a sin offering. It's for a sin offering. But you see, the priest really knew it was a sin offering because it was a lamb. And he was a common person. So he would inspect the lamb. He'd check the ears, make sure there was no fungus in it, make sure there was no eye poked out, make sure it had all its teeth. You know, you don't want any broken teeth. This is an offering before the Lord, and we, we give our best when we give to the Lord. Do everything as if you were doing unto the Lord, cooking your husband's supper, washing your children's clothes, those mundane things that we do, as if you were doing it under the Lord. So he would inspect this little lamb, no broken bones, no mange anywhere. It looked like a healthy lamb. So he would give it back to him, and he would say, okay, you may enter. So then he would come into the courtyard. He would come before the brazen altar, and there he would meet the high priest, And again, the high priest would come to him and he would take the lamb and he would ask him, what family do you represent? The Pierce family. The Pierce family. And this is your lamb. Yes, it is. This is his lamb. This was his sin offering. He would look at it. He would receive it. Then he would give it back to him. And he would ask him to kneel. Because you see, and I want you to get this if you don't get anything else tonight. The person who brings the lamb, the person with the sin in his life, the person that is representing his family and the sin in their family, the one that brought the gift, the offering, Not the high priest. 
to make the sacrifice because it's not the high priest's sin. It's his sin. So who kills the lamb? The one who brings the lamb. The one who wants to be forgiven for the sins. He brings the lamb. He kills the lamb. You who has the sin in your life, he, Christ, bore your sin on the cross so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life. This one, he kills the lamb. All this time, I thought it was the high priest that killed all the animals, but he didn't. The one who brought the sacrifice killed the sacrifice. The one that tied the goat or the ram or the whatever, the bull, the one, the animal that tried with all his might and strength and power to get away, the one who brought him killed him. The only time that the high priest killed the offering was when he was presenting it himself, either for himself or for his congregation of people. Then he would sacrifice the animal. Then he would sprinkle the blood. And different sacrifices, different sins, they kind of had different little rules and regulations about it. And when you read in Leviticus about the offerings, you'll see what I'm talking about. But oftentimes the blood, it would, some of it would be put on the horns of the altar. Some of it would be sprinkled around the altar. Some of it would be sprinkled on top of the altar. And the priest would take it seven times. He would sprinkle that blood. But here, the Pierce family has brought their offering, their sacrifice. And the high priest would instruct him on how to do it. Because you see, we don't really want to put this little lamb through any more than he's already been put through or what he's going through. And this was not just any lamb. You see what they would do when it was time, when they were going to bring their offering? They would pull one of the little lambs out of the flock. Now, this is a sheep, but because of its age being less than a year old, it's a lamb. But like I said, this was not just any old lamb. This lamb had been pulled out of the flock, brought into the tent, and nurtured and loved on, and cared for. I can see little children now bringing it into the tent and it being nasty. The mom and saying, go wash that thing. Don't be bringing that nasty lamb into my house, like my dogs in my house. But this lamb was loved. There was an emotional attachment to this lamb. And when he brought the lamb, when he came before the tent to bring a sacrifice, those children were left at home crying. Because they knew this lamb was not coming back. And they loved that lamb. I imagine the lamb had slept in the, on the cot with some of them, like Henry does his dogs. So this was a very special lamb. He has an, an attachment to this lamb, this sin offering. So what the high priest would do, he would hand this back to him because he would be the one to slaughter the lamb. Because it was his sin. 
I hid this so I wouldn't forget it. Then the high priest would come and he would give very specific instructions to the man who brought the lamb, the sheep, the lamb, the sacrifice, the offering, as to how we're going to do this. So what he would instruct him to do is to hold the lamb and to take his thumb and his forefinger right here at the carotid veins on the jugular veins and he would squeeze. Go ahead. He would squeeze gently. Just get a little tighter and a little tighter on those jugular veins till eventually the lamb would just go to sleep. Didn't want to torture him. After that lamb was asleep, then the high priest would hand the knife to the one who brought the lamb, and he would instruct him, while he's still holding with one hand, to keep this lamb asleep. He would take his other hand, and he would go from one side of that juggler vein, he'd nick it. He'd go to the other side, he'd nick that vein. Then the blood would begin to flow. And the high priest would take the gold bowl and he would put it up under the neck as the blood flowed. The blood would flow over the person's hands that had brought the sacrifice. The blood had to flow over his hands. And what's that song? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The priest would then stand and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle. He would take some of it and he would sprinkle it on the sides of the altar. And he would take some of it and he would pour it at the base of the altar. The blood, the innocent blood from an innocent lamb for his sins. The high priest would then take the lamb and he would have the man who brought, the head of the family, the one who brought the sacrifice to stand at the altar and to watch as the lamb was being burned. But before he placed it on the altar, the high priest would take it, lift it high. Resonate with you? Maybe he lifted high and he would say a prayer for the Pierce family. And then the lamb would be placed on the altar to be burned as the sacrifice. Now in Jesus' day, you can sit down, love you. Thank you. Now in Jesus' day, in the second temple in the days of Herod, There would be lots of people that would come for the feast and for sacrifice. See, remember, in the days of the tabernacle of Moses, it was open 
So people would just kind of trickle in. But during Jesus' day, people would bring their animals to the east gate to be inspected, be brought in just like his did. But one difference was that their lambs, their sacrifice, would have a tag, an ID tag, and it would be stamped and pressed with the family's name on it, saying who that sacrifice belonged to. Because you didn't want your lamb or your bull or your whatever mixed up with somebody else's. Because you had taken great care in making sure that that sacrifice didn't have a blemish on it. So you wanted your ID tag on that animal. So when the man came, or the person came, and it was a man, the head of the house, brought his tag. His family knew that he would return, but he wouldn't return with the sacrifice. He would return with the ID tag, showing that he had done his responsibility for his family by bringing the sacrifice for their sins to be forgiven. An ID tag. Now, in Jesus' day, when somebody was about to be crucified for their sins on a cross, and that happened a lot, we tend to think about the one, the lamb that came for the sins of the world so that we could live. We generally think about that. But every, you know, lots of folks were crucified back then. That was their form of punishment. And they would wear a tag around their necks that would say, what their crime was, who they were and what their crime was, what they were being charged with. When Jesus came, when he was crucified on that cross, he had an ID tag too. It wasn't provided by the head of the family. But the head of the family made sure that he had a tag, that he had an ID on him. And it would be written in several languages because you see people would come from all over to make their, have to bring their sacrifice, to make atonement for their sins. So you'd have all kinds of languages there. The one on the top, this is Aramaic. This would have been the language of Jesus. And it would have read right to left. Hebrew also was the Religious language of those people of that time in that era, the Aramaic people. Also, it would be written in Latin. This is the second line. It goes left to right. Now, Latin was the language of the Roman government. Latin was the, the language of the commerce of the people that were coming for trade. It was, it was a language that a lot of commerce people used in the Roman government. It was kind of like their language. So it was very popular. And then it would be in Greek. Greek was the language of the pagan people. You know, they're just in town for a good meal, a little celebration, a little good wine. They were pagan, so it had to speak to them. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John, the 19th chapter. I want you to read about the controversy of this tag Jesus would have Warren. 
the 19th chapter of John, starting with the 19th verse. Let's hear what Pilate and Caiaphas had to say about this. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, and he said, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, and he said, What I have written, I have written. So the ID tag was not one of a charge of a crime or a major offense. His tag simply said, that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I want to ask you something. Did a lamb ever wear your ID tag? Today, because of Christ's death on that cross, we don't have to sacrifice animals. But it's still very important because it's still so vital that you confess your sins. Because let me tell you what confession does. And, and I wrote it on your little sheet, on your little notes, because I want you to know what confession will do for you. Confession shows that you have a realization of your sin, that you're not so arrogant that you think you're above sin. So confession shows that there's a realization that there is sin in your life, that there's something not right. It also shows an awareness of God's holiness. You come to him with your sin because you know who he is and what he can do for you because he is who he is. And it also shows humility before God. You humble yourself before him to ask for your forgiveness. And it shows your willingness to turn from the sin in your life are from the things that are not pleasing unto the Lord. Even Jesus' death will be of little significance or little value to us if we do not repent and follow Him. Tonight, I don't know what your stuff is. I don't know what your hearts are all about. I don't know your life. don't know what you've done. don't know what you're doing. It's not really in my business, but the Lord knows. But I want to give you an opportunity tonight to come before the altar with your offering, whether it's a burnt offering, whether it's a grain offering or fellowship offering or guilt. Get rid of your guilt, ladies. You don't have to walk around carrying it. You can be forgiven. You can give it to me. You don't have to pick it up again. It's gone. Or whether or not you may have a sin offering. But the altar is open for you for whatever it is that you want to lay at the foot of the cross for the Lord to take care of for you. And I pray too as you come and you come before this altar that whatever chains that you have, whether it's guilt, whether it's remorse, whether it's hurt, hurt from a husband or a spouse or a friend or a parent or a child, whatever that is that you have that you're in chain, that you're in bondage to, 
I pray tonight that when you bring your offering to Him, that when you leave this place, that you're free. And don't go back there and visit that again. Don't let guilt have a hold on you. That is not of the Lord. Nowhere in that book where you say, where you hear that the Lord says, I'm going to use that guilt tool on you. He doesn't do that. And I want to tell you something else too. Whatever you have in you that is not of Him, you need to get rid of it. Because if you have things within you that's not of Him, you're taking up good space. You get rid of all that that is not of Him, and He will begin to pour so much of Himself into you. The thoughts that you once had, the little cutting remarks, the little digs that you like to take at people, to one-up them, the resentment that you may have, whatever you have in here, you get rid of it so that He can fill you with things that are good and things that are of Him, so you can walk like Him, you can talk like Him, you can think like Him, you can be like Him. Because let me tell you something. When you wake up every day and you have that conscious thought of, Lord, fill me with yourself, it's really kind of hard to have a mean attitude. It's kind of hard to use ugly words. Because who wants to subject Jesus to that junk? That pure and holy lamb that came, sacrificed himself willingly for our ugly selfish, self-consumed people? Come to the altar if you want. Leave it with Him and leave here new and free.